Once upon a time, I read books and magazines. Then along came email. I thought that was pretty keen. I got on some good list serves. That was pretty neat. It was all so interactive. I was in the driver's seat. Then along came social media. That's when I lost my shit. Now there just wasn't time for anything else to fit. Facebook, Facebook, what else is there to do? Facebook, Facebook, sit and watch me spew. I feel like I've lost perspective. I don't know where I'm found. I just gotta see what's happening when I hear the sound of somebody responding to my latest post. Maybe someone even shared it, then I'll have to post the toast. Hey, that wee baby is the cutest little tank. I'm gonna have to take a moment to click another like. Facebook, Facebook, I think I lost the plot. Facebook, Facebook, it's the only one I got. There's a drunk out in the alley. I think he's getting sick. The cat's playing with the garbage. I'll have to take a pick. My friends and I once met, drank coffee and ate scones. Now we meet at the cafe and stare down at our bones. We can stop to post a selfie to show we're all sitting there. If we talk, we might miss out on something someone shares. Facebook, Facebook, just give me my news feed. Facebook, Facebook, it's all the news I need. They say it's a revolution, but I'm not sure that's so. I didn't use an app to find out what I needed to know. They didn't have the internet in 1848 when they rose up around the world without a single status update. Maybe that's a straw man, or maybe it is not. Maybe there are better tools than the ones we've got. Facebook, Facebook, I'll get up off this chair. Facebook, Facebook, just got one more post to share. Facebook, Facebook, I'm not trying to be crass. Facebook, Facebook, someday I'll get up off my ass. And that was David Rovix from the album The Other Side. That was... The Facebook song. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. You'll find all the back episodes of Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020 at bernie 20 20.com. You'll also find a link there where you can uh, send me a message. First up is a piece from Wired.com. This piece is written by Evan Greer. Evan Greer is uh, one of the directors of Fight for the Future and has a lot to say consistently about um, spying from, from our government, about uh, online social media, and about individual privacy. Evan Greer is also a singer-songwriter, and her latest album, She, Her, They, Them, is amazing. This is a piece by Evan Greer in Wired. This week, Facebook announced with much fanfare that it will temporarily ban all political advertising after polls close on November 3rd, quote, to reduce opportunities for confusion or abuse. Unfortunately, this performative move won't do much of anything to address the very real threat of chaos and disinformation in the wake of the election. And at the same time that Facebook is seeking kudos for its political ad moratorium, it is making another major change, turning on algorithmic amplification for posts within groups. This means that you won't just see posts from groups that you've signed up for, but also posts from other groups that Facebook thinks you should see. This change will dramatically increase the risk that false and inflammatory content will go viral. Facebook groups will grow rapidly. 
the algorithmic boost, nudging like-minded people into each other's filter bubbles, will supercharge recruitment for toxic and harmful groups. The cesspool, where white supremacist conspiracy theories are born. There will also be a massive influx of trolls and conflict in existing groups that are currently mostly functional. For example, it's not hard to imagine how discussion groups for LGBTQ parents, perhaps the last vestige of Facebook with any positive value in my life, will be affected by this when our intra-community discussions start showing up in the feeds of random homophobes. Facebook theatrically banning political ads while supercharging its rage machine is a perfect example of the platform making cosmetic changes to appease critics while plowing full steam ahead with a business model that's fundamentally incompatible with democracy and human rights. If Facebook really wants to avoid being used to poison and undermine democracy, it needs to take a much more significant step than banning certain types of ads. Instead, the company should immediately shut down the algorithms across its platform that artificially amplify and suppress users' organic posts in a quest for maximum, quote, engagement. Read advertising dollars. Restoring the news feed's chronological setting, which would show people what they signed up to see rather than what Facebook thinks they want to see, might just save what's left of our democracy. In reality, no one will need to spend money on advertisements to make dangerous and misleading content go viral in the wake of this election. Provocative posts spread like wildfire during major political moments like these. I can speak from personal experience. My organization, Fight for the Future, hasn't spent a penny on Facebook ads in years, but we regularly get content to go viral during big moments, like the repeal of net neutrality, major congressional hearings, or fiery political debates. We make our posts interesting, provocative, and shareable, but we also ensure they are accurate and don't promote harmful ideologies. Many online actors, whether they are state-backed coordinated disinformation campaign or just a bigoted keyboard warrior, have no such scruples. And Facebook's algorithm, which is optimized for engagement at all costs, is there to constantly fan the flames. It finds the most incendiary takes on the platform and exploits its massive trove of behavioral data to inject hateful and misleading information directly into the minds of people most susceptible to political manipulation. A bombshell report in the Wall Street Journal earlier this year showed that Facebook executives are well aware of the harm this surveillance capitalist machine causes. An internal audit showed that more than 60% of all people who joined hate groups on the platform found them through Facebook's recommendation. But Facebook's rage-inducing algorithm is much more lucrative than its entire political ad business, which will account for less than 1% of the company's 2020 revenue. That's why it's banning political ads while turning the volume up to max on its profitable and dangerous amplification algorithm. Facebook's billionaire CEO Mark Zuckerberg has said repeatedly that his company should not be the, quote, arbiter of truth. I actually agree with him, and I have argued against more aggressive moderation or fact-checking of social media posts, which will always result in collateral damage and the silencing of marginalized voices and opinions. But if Facebook doesn't want to be responsible for determining what is and isn't true, it also shouldn't be deciding what content goes viral and what content no one sees, especially not in the immediate aftermath of what is perhaps the highest stakes presidential election in U.S. history. Discussions around election disinformation and the harms of big tech have often centered on what types of advertisements and posts social media platforms allow and disallow. It's easy to get bogged down in the back and forth over whether a specific post from Trump should be labeled or not or whether Facebook should have removed the fake video of, quote, drunk Nancy Pelosi. This can become an exercise in working the refs in a game we always lose. The problem with Facebook is not the speech itself. It is the company's amplification of it, which it has been able to master through its monopoly power. 
Facebook's inescapable data harvesting, micro-targeting, and algorithmic amplification allows speech to be weaponized against democratic norms and civil rights. There is no silver bullet solution. To fix this, we need every tool in the toolbox. Grassroots pressure, antitrust action, open source and decentralized alternatives, strong data privacy legislation, adversarial interoperability, and other policies that make big tech's abusive and monopolistic practices impractical or illegal. But all of that will take time, and the election is weeks away. Facebook's algorithm is a digital megaphone for groups planning real-world violence and a deadly signal boost for false information about COVID-19. As Chief Executive Officer and Majority Shareholder, Mark Zuckerberg has his hand on the lever that could shut off Facebook's toxic algorithms and restore users' timelines to chronological order. He can push a button that would save lives threatened by the viral spread of lies and hate, and would dramatically increase the chances that we leave our children a livable planet where people have basic human rights. He should do it. And he should do it now before it's too late. Next up is a piece from Common Dreams at commondreams.org, this piece written by John Queeley. The 2020 Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the United Nations World Food Program early Friday morning, with the honor given in recognition of the international organization's, quote, efforts to combat hunger for its contribution to bettering conditions for peace in conflict-affected areas and for acting as a driving force in efforts to prevent the use of hunger as a weapon of war and conflict. In response, the WFP's executive director, David Beasley, said the award was, quote, humbling, moving recognition for its international staff who lay their lives on the line every day to bring food and assistance for close to 100 million hungry children, women, and men across the world, people whose lives are often brutally torn apart by instability, insecurity, and conflict. Announcing the award, the Nobel Committee said that amidst multi-layered global crises, namely ongoing war and conflicts, acute poverty, and the ravages of COVID-19 pandemic, the focused work of the WFP to battle starvation and promote food security was more important than it has ever been. According to the committee, quote, The world is in danger of experiencing a hunger crisis of inconceivable proportions if the World Food Program and other food assistance organizations do not receive the financial support they have requested. The link between hunger and armed conflict is a vicious circle. War and conflict can cause food insecurity and hunger, just as hunger and food insecurity can cause latent conflicts to flare up and trigger the use of violence. We will never achieve the goal of zero hunger unless we also put an end to the war, to war and armed conflict. While emphasizing that humanitarian efforts to end hunger and increase food security is also the work of curtailing war and conflict, the Nobel Committee said it hopes this year's prize will help, quote, turn the eyes of the world towards the millions of people who suffer from or face the threat of hunger. The World Food Program plays a key role in multilateral cooperation on making food security an instrument of peace and has made a strong contribution towards mobilizing UN member states to combat the use of hunger as a weapon of war and conflict. Beasley said that the work of the WFP is not done alone, as it works with governments, local communities, and organizations worldwide to fulfill its mission. And therefore, the award cannot belong to just one organization. Quote, Every one of the 690 million hungry people in the world today has the right to live peacefully and without hunger. Today, the Norwegian Nobel Committee has turned this global spotlight on them and on the devastating consequences of conflict. Climate shocks and economic pressures have further compounded their plight, 
And now a global pandemic with its brutal impact on economies and communities is pushing millions more to the brink of starvation. Anti-war activists applauded WFP for receiving the honor and said they hoped it would have its desired impact by highlighting the destruction caused by war, especially conflicts bolstered by the nation with the world's largest and most powerful military, the United States. As did the Nobel Committee, Beasley emphasized the interlocking dynamic between people having enough to eat and the prospects of a more peaceful world. Quote, Where there is conflict, there is hunger. And where there is hunger, there is often conflict, he said. Today is a reminder that food security, peace, and stability go together. Without peace, we cannot achieve our global goal of zero hunger. And while there is hunger, we will never have a peaceful world. And illustrating that conflict and that challenge involved in the work done by the World Food Program is this piece from MiddleEastEye.net. Yemen's Houthis slam World Food Program's Nobel Peace Prize win. Yemen Houthi rebels accuse the World Food Program, WFP, of failing to stop famine in the war-ravaged country shortly after the UN body was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for fighting global hunger. Houthi spokesman Talat al-Sharjabi told the AFP news agency on Friday that the WFP had, quote, largely failed in the biggest task for which it was chosen for the Nobel Peace Prize, and that is combating hunger. A large number of people suffer from malnutrition, and there is also a failure on the WFP's part to be neutral in terms of humanitarian aid distribution, he said. Yemen has endured years of chaos since the Houthis seized the capital, Sana'a in late 2014, and ousted former president Abd Rabu Mansar Houdi from power. Saudi Arabia and its allies intervened in the country's civil war in March 2015 and have since carried out more than 20,000 airstrikes in an effort to roll back the rebels, with one-third striking non-military sites, including schools, factories, and hospitals, according to the Yemen Data Project. The protracted conflict has triggered what the UN calls the, quote, world's worst humanitarian crisis with roughly 24 million people forced to rely on aid, while 10 million are staring at famine. The WFP has a troubled relationship with the Houthis, who control much of the north of the country, including Sana'a. The UN body tries to feed 13 million people each month. However, the WFP temporarily suspended deliveries to Houthi-led areas last year after accusations the Houthis were diverting food. Following this, the group was dropped the group dropped its threat to impose a tax on aid. The WFP has since pushed for a biometric registration scheme to avoid the diversion of supplies. In August 2019 it reached a deal to resume deliveries after the Houthis offered guarantees concerning the beneficiaries. However, that same month Houthi forces destroyed tons of food aid they said had expired after it was reportedly held up for months. A UN source said at the time that the aid had been intended for delivery to families in Yemen's third city of Taiz, but, quote, ended up detained at a checkpoint for months and months. Aid has recently been cut at hundreds of health centers and some humanitarian programs reduced or shut down as the UN struggles for financial support amid cuts in funding from the U.S. Earlier this week, the international charity Oxfam said the global community had donated about 25 U.S. cents per day for each of the 24.3 million Yemenis in need of assistance this year. Still, Yemen's international recognized government welcomed the WFP's award, pointing to the, quote, wise and courageous leadership of the UN agency's executive director, David Beasley. The WFP plays a pivotal role in relief efforts in Yemen and has been able to impose its conditions on the Houthi rebels and implement different programs, said Abdul Rakib Fateh, 
the chairman of Yemen's Relief Committee. Like we do all over the world, the U.S. government is uh, amplifying the crisis in Yemen by material and financially supporting that war uh, on the side of Saudi Arabia in attacking the rebels in Yemen and prolonging a conflict and prolonging that humanitarian crisis that World Food Program describes as the greatest in the world. It needs to stop. Next up is a piece from Economic Policy Institute, which is at epi.org. Most Americans believe that a rising tide should lift all boats. And I have a, I have a major problem with this. Um, I don't even know what this is, an axiom. Uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. That's assuming everybody's in a boat. And assuming that all those boats are of equal quality, then a rising tide lifts all boats. But some people have boats that aren't worthy, aren't aren't water worthy or seaworthy, and a rising a rising tide floods them. Some people have boats that are too small, and a rising tide engulfs them. And many people. Have no boats at all, and a rising tide drowns them. And the worst off not only have no boats, but they are anchored to the ground and are overwhelmed by a rising tide. So just consider that when you hear people say, a rising tide lifts all boats. It doesn't. The other boat-related metaphor related to economic turmoil is that we're all in the same boat. It's like, oh, there's a crisis, but we're all in the same boat. And it's not just economic. There's the, the COVID pandemic, but we're all in the same boat. We're not all in the same boat because of inequality, because of what the, the Economic Policy Institute uh, focuses on in this piece. Some people are in battleships. Some people are in yachts. Some people are in sailboats. Some people have no boats. This is the economic reality. So whenever a crisis occurs, we are not all in the same boat. There are people who the crisis has zero impact on. And those generally are the people with the most wealth, the millionaires and billionaires, the people in the 1%. And there's people who a crisis has significant impact on, and this is your middle class and working class. And then there's people for whom a crisis is devastating. These are the people without boats. These are the poor. So... Neither does a rising tide lift all boats, nor are we all in the same boat. But in any event, here's this piece. Most Americans believe that a rising tide should lift all boats, that as the economy expands, everybody should reap the rewards. And for two and a half decades, beginning in the late 1940s, this was how our economy worked. Over this period, the pay, wages, and benefits of typical workers rose in tandem with productivity, how much workers produce per hour. In other words, as the economy became more efficient and expanded, everyday Americans benefited correspondingly through better pay. But in the 1970s, this started to change. From 1979 to 2018, net productivity rose 108%, while the hourly pay of typical workers essentially stagnated, increasing only 11.6% over 39 years after adjusting for inflation. 
This means that although Americans are working more productively than ever, the fruits of their labors have primarily accrued to those at the top and to corporate profits, especially in recent years. Rising productivity provides the potential for substantial growth in the pay for the vast majority. However, this potential has been squandered in recent decades. The income, wages, and wealth generated over the last four decades have failed to, quote, trickle down to the vast majority, largely because policy choices made on behalf of those with the most income, wealth, and power have exacerbated inequality. In essence, rising inequality has prevented potential pay growth from translating into actual pay growth for most workers. The result has been wage stagnation. And you can phrase this or think about this in another way. The wealthy and the owners of the companies for whom we work, for whom all the working class does their work, has taken all of the profits in the last 50 years and given very, very little of those increased profits over that time to the workers who make the money. For future productivity gains to lead to robust wage growth and widely shared prosperity, we need to institute policies that reconnect pay and productivity and restore worker power, such as those in EPI's First Day Fairness Agenda and the Agenda to Raise America's Pay. Without such policies, efforts to spur economic growth or increase productivity, the largest factor driving growth, will fail to lift typical workers wages. And from the collapse of working people's wages to international money and influence, this next piece is from Middle East Eye. U.S. imposes sanctions on Iran in defiance of European humanitarian concerns. The U.S. imposed a tranche of sanctions on Iran's financial sector on Thursday, defying European allies who warned the move would limit Tehran's ability to purchase humanitarian imports amid a worsening currency crisis in the coronavirus pandemic. The Treasury Department announced that it was blacklisting 18 major Iranian banks, effectively cutting Tehran off from the international financial system. In a statement, the Treasury said that it had, quote, identified the financial sector of Iran's economy as an additional avenue that funds the Iranian government's malign activities. Of course, the financial sector funds all of the government's activities, benign and malign. And that's where the crisis comes in. European nations have opposed a blanket sanctioning of Iran's financial sector because it exposes European banks that do business with the blacklisted banks and other companies to punitive measures by Washington. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said in a statement that the decision to target the 18 banks wouldn't hinder the Islamic Republic's ability to access humanitarian aid, but instead reflected a, quote, commitment to stop illicit access to U.S. dollars. Today's actions will continue to allow for humanitarian transactions to support the Iranian people, he said. But critics have long contended that U.S. sanctions have obstructed the flow of vital food, medicines, and other humanitarian aid to the country. A senior European official told the Washington Post that the U.K., France, and Germany had expressed fears that the new sanctions would freeze Iran's foreign assets, quote, thus further exacerbating the shortage of foreign currency to pay for humanitarian imports. After the sanctions were announced, Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif accused the U.S. of wanting to, quote, blow up our remaining channels to pay for food and medicine. Last year, the Islamic Republic imported $1 billion worth of medical goods and grain worth $3.5 billion. Iranians will survive this latest of cruelties, Iran's chief diplomat said on Twitter, but conspiring to starve a population is a crime against humanity. Culprits and enablers who block our money 
will face justice. Despite calls from the UN officials and governments to halt sanctions during the COVID-19 pandemic, the Trump administration has not relented on its maximum pressure campaign launched after it unilaterally withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal with world powers in 2018. Last month, the U.S. defied its European allies by announcing the re-imposition of so-called snapback sanctions. Virtually every other member of the Security Council disputes Washington's eligibility to execute this legal turnaround, and the Council has not taken the measure any further. U.S. sanctions on Iran have increased pressure on the cost of living for ordinary people, driving up the prices of everyday goods, including food and medicine. In June, the Iranian rial dropped to a historic low, with the U.S. dollar being offered for as many as 193,300 rials. In addition to sanctions, a drop in oil prices and a slump in the global economy have deepened the economic crisis. Barbara Slavin, the director of the Future of Iran Initiative at the Atlantic Council, said the sanctions were, quote, sadism masquerading as foreign policy. They won't bring the Iranian government to its knees, but will hurt ordinary people, encourage more smuggling, and in the long run, undermine dollar-based sanctions, she wrote. And that's the, the crisis of the way that the U.S. is using sanctions, sanctions as a blanket instrument to try to um, influence two things, influence the government to change its ways and influence the people to rise up against that government by making life for them so hard and harsh under that government that they have little or few other options than to resist that government. It's the goal of these types of sanctions, the sanctions that the U.S. has put on Iran, the sanctions that the U.S. has put on Venezuela, and as we'll see in a moment, the sanctions that the U.S. has put on Nicaragua. And sanctions can be a useful tool when used surgically with precision in targeting the individuals that need to be that need to have power, you know, sucked away from them. But uh, blanket sanctions that hurt the people have to be a last resort. And that's not the way the U.S. government is yielding that weapon. This piece from Barron's Magazine, a piece by the Agence France Press. The United States on Thursday imposed sanctions on a Nicaraguan bank and two senior officials, expanding pressure over the leftist government's crackdown on protests and alleged corruption. The Treasury Department said it would freeze any U.S. assets and ban transactions with the Karuna Bank, as well as Nicaragua's Attorney General and the Secretary of the Presidency. The Treasury Department's alleged that President Daniel Ortega used Karuna, which stands for Cooperativa de Ahorro y Credito Caja Rural Nacional, as an unregulated slush fund that takes money from the state oil company to provide patronage to supporters. It accused the Attorney General, Ana Julia Guido de Romero, of leading efforts to charge prisoners detained for peaceful protests, including some arrested for delivering water to a group of mothers on a hunger strike as they sought justice for their children. The latest move, quote, promotes accountability for the Ortega regime and those who are attempting to further its atrocious activities, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said in a statement. The United States will continue to take the necessary steps to support the Nicaraguan people and pressure the Ortega regime to cease repression, respect human rights, and allow the conditions for free and fair elections that would restore democracy to Nicaragua. Although Ortega came to power in an election. Uh, President Donald Trump's administration has been raising pressure on Nicaragua as well as its leftist allies, Cuba and Venezuela. It had has already imposed sanctions on Ortega, as well as his wife, Vice President Rosario Murillo. 
the leader of the left-wing Sandinista movement, Ortega was re-elected in disputed polls in 2016 for a term that ends in 2022. More than 300 people died as security forces put down protests in 2018 that sought earlier elections after Ortega pushed Social Security reforms. And that 300 number is somewhere in the ballpark, but tells a skewed picture when it is used because there were uh, victims on both sides of that conflict during those protests. And about half of those were victims of the police and the government. And about half were victims of the gangs and groups supporting the protests. And that'll bring us to our final story this episode. And kind of wraps up some of the some of the pieces that we've covered, you know, the piece about Yemen and the lack of support for humanity and the people on the ground suffering through that crisis. Uh, the piece about capitalism and the productivity gains not providing any increase in in livelihood for the working class and poor in those pieces about the sanctions. This is published at commondreams.org and this is written by Kenneth R. Colton. No lives matter. The band Body Count, led by rapper-actor Ice-T, has returned in recent years, very much unlike when they released the song Cop Killer in 1992. The band now garners practically no mainstream attention, and hence no corresponding moral panic. In their recent 2017 release, No Lives Matter, Ice-T explains. But honestly, it ain't just black, it's yellow, it's brown, it's red, it's anyone who ain't got the cash, poor whites that they call trash. They can't fuck with us. Once we realize we're all on the same side, they can't split us up and let them prosper off the divide. The song is supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement, but calls for the recognition of class as a shared experience that transcends race. This is something Ice-T has likely recognized firsthand among the band's supporters. Body Count is a heavy metal band that performs for racially mixed audiences, but the majority of which are alienated lower and middle class white people. Body Count and other rock rap crossover artists like Insane Clown Posse have long since brought together audiences that find unity from the shared experience of economic and social marginalization that transcends race. Coalitions like this do exist, but such examples are rare in the mainstream popular culture. Black Lives Matter resonates for mainstream youth brought up with multiculturalism and a politics driven by personal identity in school systems that refuse to mention the existence of class disparities. Officially, Black Lives Matter claims to affirm the lives of those who have been marginalized within black liberation movements, namely the disabled, women, trans, queer people, and the undocumented, and lives along the gender spectrum. Important, yes, but this has no traction with the great majority of white people over the age of 35. Not only can they not see themselves supporting identity movements, they can't imagine being supported by them either. White men, as it stands, don't have acceptable identities in the age of identity politics. The very notion that white people have problems too cannot be taken seriously when the dominant movement trope of the day is Black Lives Matter. And I disagree with the author here. I think it is a bigger barrier to break through in many cases, but it's, it's a critically important one for white people such as myself to recognize the history and to get beyond that barrier that makes us feel separated from the people protesting. We are not. They are us. As other people have said more eloquently, 
when you are harmed, you being any member of the underclass or of an oppressed minority group, then I am harmed. It hurts me. It makes it makes it less possible for me to live a fulfilled life if you cannot live your fulfilled life. Back to the story. Middle-aged working and middle-class white men are committing suicide at alarming rates. Their lives don't matter either. We should understand their despair. They and all the rest of us are cogs in the machine. Yet the dominant movement of our time fails to offer them a seat at the table. It does this not by focusing on black lives, but by failing to acknowledge that class and economics are vitally important mechanisms by which people are stratified and oppressed. Many white men understand this as betrayal. They see that Democrats aligned with the Black Lives Matter would rather, quote, elevate minorities than empathize with their reality of diminishing power and influence. And I think this is an important point. I don't think it is on the Black Lives Matter movement to resolve this challenge. I think it is on the white allies to work to resolve this challenge and, and bring those outside individuals who don't feel like there's a place in this movement into this movement and help them understand that this movement supports them. Um, and failing to do so is why the right wing is able to attract so many middle class and poor white people to support their racist bullshittery. Quote, no lives matter as a concept is the needed evolution for the Black Lives Matter movement, a movement that suffers somewhat from low expectations as it essentializes race. No lives matter should resonate clearly when the president refers to the 200,000 plus COVID-19 dead as, quote, virtually nobody and pursues a policy of herd immunity that would kill many thousands or millions more. This is nothing new. It rises and returns in one form or another. An essential feature of the capitalist system is the devaluation of life for the profit of a few. No Lives Matter would be a catalyst for true consciousness leading all to reflect on their place in the system. As an exploited class of diverse peoples, the 99%, if you will. The common ground found in economic struggle is the fertile place from which ancillary issues such as police brutality that disproportionately affects people of color could be fruitfully addressed. The greatest threat to us all is, of course, the eminent decline of all life support systems on the planet brought about by a capitalist exploitation. It shouldn't need to be said, but this is the battle that should supersede all others. Losing it will make every other struggle irrelevant. Winning demands that will dismantle systems of exploitation, namely capitalism, from the inside out. Black Lives Matter, because it has no mechanism to lay bare class domination, is furthermore a useful idiot for the bourgeois class. I disagree here as well. I think there, is, there are mechanisms in Black Lives Matter to lay bare class domination. There is a segment of Black Lives Matter, the segment that the the conservatives call Marxist that precisely target this area uh, and the, the exploitation of capitalism and say that black lives cannot be free and fulfilled under the capitalist system. It is built to oppress and suppress black lives. Corporations can spare a few pennies in the name of racial equality while continuing to exacerbate deadly economic inequalities and environmental degradation. Poverty brought on by late capitalism kills many more people of color than the police ever could, and that same poverty kills many more white people. As climate catastrophes worsen, the insecurity of the white so-called middle class will only intensify as well, and for good reason as it does an even greater number of white folks will choose from fascist movement that speaks to their loss of power and invites them to reclaim it from the wrong people by force or a Black Lives Matter movement that literally ignores their existence. Which will they choose? 
And I do think that is the pressing question and challenge of the Black Lives Matter movement. It is seen from the right, from the conservative side, as something that is trying to take more away from those people that the conservatives don't really give a fuck about, except for when it's time for them to vote for conservative candidates. But they do nothing for otherwise. But they're able to convince those people due to centuries of conditioning that the challenges, economic challenges faced by those people in the working class, in the, in the, the poor communities are because of someone else. They are because of immigrants. They're because of black people. They are because of something other whatever other is that those conservative politicians need to twist and manipulate and do so very successfully, especially recently in the rise of Trump. Um, that is a big obstacle and it's a, a long history to break through. And part of it is teaching the long history of oppression that black folks and immigrants and others have faced and getting through that you are facing the same circumstances as they are. They're not your enemy. They're your ally. They are willing to work with you to make things better, which will make your life better. I understand that no movement can be all things to all people. Any attempt would dilute it to the point of complete ineffectiveness. Black Lives Matter is important in its own right and should not be diminished, but the inertia it has created can be an engine to drive the more expansive collective effort that is required. Beyond its reliance on personal identity, Black Lives Matter has been successful in large part because most people recoil at the torture of living beings. And there is plenty of filmed evidence as grist for that particular mill. Similar to how the animal rights movement in the 80s and 90s had been effective in attracting young participants who would go on to become anti-capitalists and anarchists. Black Lives Matter is successful in bringing to light the ruthlessness of systems of power and domination. In turn, it could ready a new generation for the struggles ahead and usher in a new period of contentious action. The kinds of actions that are needed, such as a general strike, must be inclusive and unified, or they will fall short. The challenge will be, as it always has been, how to facilitate class consciousness as bourgeois forces endeavor to divide and conquer. And that'll wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes of Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020 at Bernie-2020.com. And you can listen to this podcast playing back and all my other podcasts playing back at movingtrainradio.com. As we exit, here is Body Count with No Lives Matter. Thanks for listening. It's unfortunate that we even have to say Black Lives Matter. I mean, if you go through history, nobody ever gave a fuck. I mean, you can kill black people in the street. Nobody goes to jail. Nobody goes to prison. But when I say Black Lives Matter and you say all lives matter, that's like if I was to say gay lives matter and you say all lives matter. If I said women's lives matter and you say all lives matter, you're diluting what I'm saying. You're diluting the issue. The issue isn't about everybody. It's about black lives at the moment. But the truth of the matter is, they don't really give a fuck about anybody if you break the shit all the way down to the low fucking dirty ass truth. We say that black lives matter, but truthfully they really never have. No one ever really gave a fuck. Just read your bullshit history books. But honestly, it ain't just black. It's yellow, it's brown, it's red. It's anyone who ain't got cash. Poor whites that they call trash. Fire!
never seen pulling rich people out of their cars in the neighborhood because they know they got lawyers. They know they'll sue their ass. They can tell who the fuck with. Unfortunately, black or brown skin has always meant poor. They profiling you, kid. They know you can't fight back, but we about to. Investigators say they are reviewing body camera and dash cam video of Tuesday's shooting. Police say that Keith Lamont Scott did have a gun in his hand when an officer shot him. A new picture of the scene shows something at Scott's feet. A source tells our Charlotte affiliate it may be a gun, but people in the neighborhood say that the father of four was holding a book instead. Officer Vincent was in plain clothes when the shooting happened, and he was not wearing a body-worn camera, but we are told that three other officers wore theirs. The department is under increasing pressure to release police videos from the shooting, but the police chief says he will not do that right now because of the investigation.